Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I'm excited because I have with me Ethan Burris, who's a Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin McComb School of Business. Today, with Ethan's help, we're going to talk about a topic that I, I think is really important, which is articulated well in his most recent article uh, in HBR, which is titled, How to Sell Your Ideas Up the Chain of Command. One of the themes in the article, which I think I really have had to learn the hard way and I think is a really valuable skill to have is this idea of influencing when you don't have formal authority or when you're not always in positions to make the call yourself. And I think Ethan's article and some of his research uh, really highlights the skill really well, but also is of immense value to anyone who has a job out there where they are not the boss and where they don't always call the shots. And I'm really excited to talk to Ethan about this today. So Ethan, first and foremost, uh, thanks so much for, for joining the MBA Center podcast. I always love to start with a warm-up question. And so my warm-up question to you is, growing up, if you think back, what was maybe your favorite book and, and what, what way did it influence you in, in your life? Yeah, so I was thinking about that. So first of all, uh, thanks, Al, for having me on. Real excited to be here and, and talk a little bit about the research and how I think it applies for students and executives uh, alike. So yeah, I was thinking a little bit about your question on on a book that kind of shaped uh, shaped me and uh, trajectory and stuff. And to be honest, there wasn't really one of them. So growing up, I loved biographies, and probably my favorite was one on Abraham Lincoln. And not only we all know about his life as as president, but uh, his life growing up was was fascinating and how his childhood and such really shaped the way he formed his views and the way he ultimately led our our country. And so that wasn't just Abraham Lincoln. That's kind of a, a lofty standard to live up to. But I read biographies about Newt Rockney, so the coach for Notre Dame. I grew up in Indiana. Bobby Knight. So again, basketball is my bread and butter growing up. But then outside of that, I gravitated towards science fiction, things like Isaac Asimov. And I'd say that the reason why I picked out those few uh, books as being important as life as a faculty member, it's the process of research and writing that up and even things like HBR articles. It's, it's not only searching out for science and truth and trying to assemble data for what's the right offensive strategy in a basketball team or the right way to construct a team in order to make better decisions, a lot of the team arrivals for Abraham Lincoln. But there's also a, a, a storytelling flair to it as well. And being able to pick out the right examples and stories really illustrate your points. And that's where some of the science fiction um, novelist really comes in and something that I always like to harken back to. That's a great cross-section of books. And I'm, I'm a basketball fan myself, and I actually remember I, it wasn't quite a, well, like, it was a little bit of biography, but if you're familiar with Sam Smith and the Jordan rules, I, I, I was a big Bulls fan growing up. And so I don't know why, but my mom bought me the book when I was maybe like nine or 10 years old. So old enough to read, but 
if you remember the book, it, well, some of it was fine, but some of it was probably not as, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, but, but she knew I was a Bulls fan and I think she was, well, he's going to read. I mean, I guess that's, that's not a terrible thing, but uh, so I remember very much those books. And then the other thing I was going to say for the Abraham Lincoln one, definitely a lot of biographies out there on him, but the, the one that I always remember, or the thing that always comes to mind outside of team of rivals was just the amount of times he failed to achieve the goal that he wanted until he became the president of the United States and just all of the trials and tribulations along the way before eventually becoming the president of the United States. And so those are the, the, as you were talking about those books, those are the ones that really stuck out to me, but what a really great, what a really great cross-section. So as you mentioned, you write a lot, you read a lot, you do a lot, ton of research, but talk to me just a little bit about your background. I know you're an, a senior associate dean, but I know you also, you teach and do some research. So tell us a little bit more just about your background, what you study, what you care about. So I've been a professor here at um, McCombs since 2005, so about 17 years. And it's really, I just started the uh, position as senior associate dean for academic affairs in the last two months. And so that position in particular, so I'm over all academic departments, so accounting, marketing, finance, management, and also all academic programs. So MBA, undergraduate, our one-year master's programs, PhD programs and also our executive education offerings too. And so in a lot of ways, it gives me an opportunity to practice what I've preached the last number of years in the classroom as a management professor. So trying to put into practice, not only elements of leadership and trying to help craft the vision and we're about to go undergo a strategic planning process for the school and be able to lead that, that process from beginning to end, but it's also basic things like HR policies. So I've taught a class called People Analytics the last number of years. So using data and analytics to help with conventional HR issues. And the business school and the university at large is experiencing the great reshuffling or great resignation, just like most organizations. And so now rather than talking about it in the abstract, this problem is very real for us. So we have to figure out a strategy to put in place to help address this and engage our, not only our staff, but our, our faculty in, in ways that we really haven't had to think about before. So uh, other classes that I've, I've taught in the past at McCombs, besides people analytics, I, I teach um, a class called Leading for Impact. It's a two-year-long leadership development course that spans the entire MBA program. So we see them at orientation right at the beginning to ask what I think are some basic but incredibly difficult questions. What's your leadership approach and philosophy? How do you aspire to be a leader? What does that mean for you? How, how do others receive you, your leadership? And then we start to battle that out because out of 260 MBA students, there's different opinions on it. And so how do you start to arrive at an informed philosophy given different people's perspectives, backgrounds, experiences? And then throughout the second year, we start to put some of those philosophies into practice where they engage in organizations and help them craft some of those uh, strategies and implement some of those strategies. Then just a little, couple quick hits. So I thought courses on managing power and politics. So you talked about influence without authority. That's essentially that class. How do you manage multiple and competing perspectives and stakeholders all at the same time? And then some fun stuff, like we started up a leadership development class in Patagonia, Chile. So I got to go on a backpacking adventure for about 10 days out in, in the outback of, um, of Patagonia and try and put some of these leadership lessons into practice when you're out in the wild. It 
feels like you have quite a diverse mix of things you get to do each and every day or each and every week, which uh, to me sounds pretty interesting and exciting. I would be curious to know one of the things that you mentioned was just particularly in this new role you have now, putting into practice some of the things that you've learned in, in real time from the research you've done, but just would be curious about what that, what's it like to have that feedback loop of having to take something you're learning or maybe even you're studying, but also putting in into practice in real time. For sure. I'll make this really close to home because I know we're going to talk about the HBR article here soon, yeah. but my, my research is on a concept I call employee voice, what leads employees to speak up in organizations. That is having honest and candid conversations with your boss about what's working and what's not. How those conversations go, which is not always the smoothest. So we have to consider how managers respond to that feedback. And so most generically, I, I work with a number of different companies, kind of both sides of the same coin, how to give advice to employees on how they can better socialize their ideas. That is how to speak up more effectively, or in this case with the HBR article, how to sell their ideas up the chain of command. But I also work with executives on how to instill a culture of voice, how to take that feedback in a way that is functional and productive. And so very quickly, I can talk through the experience of stepping into that role. There are about 250 uh, full-time faculty members at McCombs between tenure track and professional track faculty. And then within the programs, there's another couple hundred staff members, everything from academic advisors to career counselors, to folks that manage diversity, equity, inclusion, and all of them have lots of opinions on how to improve the place. And so just within the first two months on the job, and in fact, I was uh, right before logging into this, this podcast, I, I was responding to a couple of our staff members who were speaking up and very forcefully about a, a couple ideas that they had for for Im improving the culture and improving a couple of the, the products and, and services we provide. And that that process is not always the easiest to engage in. And then certainly to be on the receiving end, it's not always the easiest to hear. But at the, at the same time, these are also the most important conversations that we can have. Because I can say very safely that I don't, I don't do everyone's job. I don't have the greatest insights into the academic advisors and what they go through and providing excellent advice for our students as they navigate course catalogs and what courses to take in order to satisfy their majors. And so to be armed with that knowledge and to make better decisions, it, it has to be an integral part of leadership. As difficult as hearing passionate pleas for changes in policy and process, as difficult as that is. I think this is a good segue and I do want to talk about the article, but maybe just to free frame this up for, for folks. So let's reasonable people can disagree on this, but generally speaking, when you work for a company, if you work for a good company, there's probably employees out there with some really good ideas. And if you're a good leader or manager, if there's a good idea out there that you would probably want to at least consider it on the flip side of it, just because you're an employee who's really smart, doesn't mean that your company is going to do everything that you come up with a great idea on. And I guess maybe to start, what, where's the nuance there in terms of how come sometimes good ideas don't get heard or don't get implemented? And then on the flip side of that, maybe how come sometimes poor ideas do get implemented or do get coalesced around? So I think you've just described sort of the nature of that, the power and politics class. Of, okay. 
I mean, at the heart of it, what I, why I was interested in studying the concept of voice in the first place is exactly as you described. What, why are some ideas that are actually implemented, not the ones that actually should be implemented? And why do some good ideas flounder and don't get the type of support that they need in order to marshal buy-in all the way through the implementation? And so from studying this over the last about 20 years now, I'd say there's a couple of themes. These are not exhaustive. One is for managers, receiving that feedback is, can be a threatening experience. Just right out of the gate, if you think about the role of what a manager is, what a leader is supposed to do, in most organizations, you get promoted because you are competent at your role. You've done that job with something. And now all of a sudden you're asked to take on additional responsibility and make decisions. And so that necessarily means implicitly that you stuff. And now all of a sudden someone else is coming along and saying, you know what? You don't know as much as you think you do. And in fact, this is another perspective you need to hear. And that's not, again, always a comforting experience for managers to go through. And so right off the bat, that, that sort of dynamic of, of being challenged as a leader to do something different than you had initiated yourself, that, that can be one source of resistance. I think compounded with that is just some of the complexities of most organizations. The dynamic I just described there is between one employee and one boss. But as in most organizations, you have several different layers of hierarchy. And so what we've found is a pretty consistent theme is that those at the very top of the organization, let's say the CEO, that person is relatively comfortable in their own shoes. They're not going to fire themselves usually. And so they know that they are out of touch. They're not on the front lines of interacting with customers and clients and buyers and suppliers. Um, so they know that they need information from those below in order to make more informed decisions. And those who are on the front lines also deal with all the problems. So they have stuff to speak up about. It's the people, the middle managers that are caught in the middle and just get crushed. And so they have quarterly numbers to meet. They have deadlines. They have budgets to adhere to. Their plates are full. And now those at the bottom are speaking up to them with a whole host of things that they would like to change. And in effect, what that means is adding many more things on their, on managers, those middle managers plates to implement. And so they're now responsible for execution and now they're employees are asking them to innovate. And those, those are two very different sets of activities with different sets of timelines and sets of outcomes. And so you have kind of both these, I would say emotional kind of threat and security pressures also mixed with some pretty intense incentives around efficiency and productivity and just executing your tasks. And that doesn't always create a recipe for making the space for people to think about all the ways we should change the way we do things. Let's say there's lots of other kind of nuances in there, but if I was going to characterize the two most basic, it kind of boils down to those two. I, I, as you're talking, I'm reflecting back on my own experience being on the front lines, as well as being a middle manager at various points. And I can definitely resonate with a couple of those, uh, the couple of those, just even from my own lived experience and 
assuming the best intent, if you do have a manager who does want to, you know, do the right thing, I can absolutely understand the nature of the trade-offs that you have to make sometimes of wanting to listen and wanting to do a thing, but to the other point you made of acknowledging that you have a target to hit or a, a number to hit that is there, you know, for a reason. And it's, it's not always, I, it's not always as clear cut, but also being on the other side of that, having been an employee on the front lines and someone who is close to what's happening each and every day, nothing can sometimes feel as deflating as ha- being the closest to the action of potentially having a solution to a problem and get, being told that we, we can't do this right now, or it, it, we have other priorities to have. And so it's a, it's a deep, it's a deep problem, but one potential solution to it, I think maybe stems from your article in HBR, which is we've been teasing it so far, but it's, it's titled how to sell your ideas up the chain of command. So I guess maybe just to start, what inspired you to write this article and to, to do this research? So I, I can answer the first question. What, what really inspired the, this particular article and, and take on it? And I'd say it's um, mostly what I had seen in both the academic literature and then also in a lot of popular press articles. It really focuses on employees and what's inside their own head. And I'll give an example of, actually, it's one of my favorite books about how to sell your ideas and do it effectively. Um, It's a book by Chip and Dan Heath. Um, Chip Heath is a cognitive psychologist at Stanford. And his brother, Dan, um, is a consultant, and they wrote a book together. It's called Made to Stick. And it's a wonderful book that goes through a number of different strategies for essentially how to pitch your ideas in a way that makes it naturally interesting to an audience. I'll just give a couple, you know, one quick example of what I mean by that. Naturally, we find things like gossip, urban legends, and rumors interesting. And so can you take lessons learned from those types of things and apply it to how you pitch an idea? And so this is one example. And the theme that I want to draw out from that is if everything about how you pitch is all in in employees' heads. So Al, I'm going to pick on you for a second, but if you reflect back to being on the front lines, you encountered the problems of your particular job dealing with uh, Now, that was your experience. You extracted from that some learnings about how we can improve this, that, and the other. And my guess is one of the things that's rolling through your head is this idea is fabulous. If only everyone else would listen to it and see the merits of it, we could change X, Y, and Z, and then we would all be better for it. And once again, that entire pitch process is just in your head. Kind of the crux of this article is, and what I'm arguing that employees need to do to be more effective is to get out of their heads and start to understand the psychology of how managers receive that feedback. And so, you know, going back to, you know, those two themes I mentioned before about how threatening that experience can be for managers. Well, If we know that, that should change the tactics that you engage in in order to better socialize your idea with that manager. If you're sensitive to the types of execution and goal setting and efficiency pressures your your manager is under, well, once again, that gives you a different idea for how to pitch your idea and how to frame it in such a way that highlights the benefits such that it resonates with the person who you're trying to convince. 
there's that uh, old, you know, with them, what's in it for me, the pithy type of title for this article is what's in it for your manager. Like asking that one simple question gets employees to slow down in this process for how to pitch your idea to really get out of your own head and the problem that you experience and start to think about what would it actually take for your manager to say yes? What makes it easy? What's a non-starter from the beginning? And therefore, how should that impact the tactics you engage in? I think you, you brought up a really great point and it's for employees who do have ideas to think about the broader context for which their idea lives in terms of you're generally speaking, when you're working for a company, you're not doing something for the sake of just yourself. You're doing it within the context of a broader organism, like an organization or with customers or partners, et cetera. And that also involves other people like your manager or your manager's manager, et cetera. And to the point you made, well, from my own experience, this has been more in the context of selling my ideas cross-functionally to maybe some partners, but one experience or one tactic I have found particularly helpful is taking the time to better understand the day-to-day lives of some of my other stakeholders. And, and so just having that perspective-taking ability, I think has helped me better conversate and share thoughts and ideas you know, with so many stakeholders. It's just a very specific example. I think I'm a much better working with people in sales because I've spent more time understanding what it's like to actually work in sales. And I can use that to think about how I want to convey a message or convey something. So I definitely, uh, that definitely resonates with me. And one of the things um, I was going to actually ask you about is from your own experience, maybe, or even just as you're thinking about your, where you are right now, have you seen some other good examples of where you've seen maybe people take this approach of perspective taking or really getting into the shoes of their manager or superior just to kind of make it more real? Is there anything you've seen that really um, demonstrates like someone really going out of their way to really understand who they're pitching to in a way to better uh, find a way to convince them of their idea or their solution, et cetera. Yeah, I would say where you see this done, I would say most effectively, I'll take it outside of, you know, yeah. this context of speaking up to your boss and into a context that I think we all know and understand a little bit better, and that is sales teams. So if you look at a, a lot of sales organizations, that stakeholder mapping that they have not only inside their head, but for a lot of them, they actually put pen to paper and mark down that business development process for how they're going to reach the key decision maker inside an organization who's going to say yes to a contract. Consultants do the very same process when looking at change management. So to map out the different stakeholders, understand their incentives and motivations for why they engage in a set of routines the way they do. There's so much forethought that's given into that just basic understanding of the way that organization or that function works before you even start to outline the, the change management process or the, the sales pitch, the sales process. Um, but it strikes me that we don't often do the same internally for our own boss or the people that we know a little bit better mostly because we have that shared history and we assume that it's just going to be blatantly obvious for everyone else. If you've lived inside the same organization that they're going to see the world the same way that, that you do. One other, I think, tactic that you listed in, in the article or one approach you listed in the article was instead of 
uh, I think the example was instead of talking to your manager and selling them first, the the approach was think about maybe someone else who in, influence whose opinions matter to that manager and 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 maybe going through them first or getting feedback from them first. Could you maybe explain why that could be a valuable approach as opposed to just directly going to the source? Yep. So I've kind of two quick statistics to share on, on, on this one. So we asked, this is inside of insurance company. And so these are, again, frontline employees in a, in a call center. And we asked them a number of questions about the ideas that they have and do they speak up directly to their boss? Do you go you know, sideways to your colleagues for advice or do you actually ask them to speak up on your behalf? Um, just trying to understand that social structure, if you will, that if you have an idea or a problem that you notice, like what happens next? And what we found is that embarrassingly few people reached out sideways to their colleagues before they started socializing the idea themselves. That may not be too surprising. Once you get an idea in your head that it's good, the next thing most people do is, well, go to the person who can actually say yes. But if you start to test the waters with some of your colleagues who may be in similar roles or have similar types of experiences, but very different, you know, reactions to that same idea, it could give you a chance to refine it, to improve what that idea is before you then go to your boss ultimately with the formal pitch, if you will. So that that's one is, I mean, it was, it was something like 35 or 40% of folks actually reached out sideways to get feedback from their colleagues, which that's a sizable percentage, but it's nowhere near a majority. The second piece to it is then if you think about, if you have an idea to sell your boss, is it you that is speaking up with that idea or should someone else do it for you? Is someone else actually in a better position to sell that idea compared to you? And if I phrase it that way, I, I imagine for, for you or a number of folks in the audience here, first reaction is, well, if someone else sells my idea, they're going to get credit for it. And I, I want that credit. It's my idea. But it doesn't really recognize or take into account the unique relationships that each person, each team member may have with the boss or each team member's area of expertise. And if it's in their knowledge domain, if it's in their area, they might have more credibility to then speak up on, on your behalf or about that particular idea. But the last thing, which I think is really important and probably underutilized is that if you have someone else bring up an idea for you, that in and of itself sends signals. It's now more than one person bringing up an idea. So by numbers alone, that what academics call social proof is a part of the selling process. But there's also an element of what I'll call pro-social motivation. So if you're evaluating somebody who's speaking on behalf of someone else, you see them as being less self-interested than if you're evaluating someone who speaks up on their own behalf. And so that person is seen as more other-oriented and less self-interested. And as a result, you tend to believe their ideas more. And so we found in a separate study, and this is analyzing about 2 million internal reports, the internal reporting system, 
And we found that when someone speaks up on behalf of someone else, and that is in this terminology, it's a secondhand account. It's not your issue. It's someone else's that they're about 57 or 58% more likely to have that idea substantiated, supported, and, and, and seen as credible. And so you put those two things together, there's that tension. Everyone wants credit for the ideas, but it may not always be the most effective way to get the idea supported and ultimately implemented. What I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the other thing that comes to mind, I think you cited some of that research that Adam Grant and some of uh, his colleagues have done just about colleagues who are seen as helping others tend to be viewed more favorably. And I guess what, one of the things that strikes me about this is that part of what we've been talking about is the being able to think not just about yourself and communicating that idea to your manager, but also recognizing that there can be other people who can be also involved in helping you be able to advance your idea or sell your idea up the chain. And I guess where I'm going with this is what's a good frame for help, helping people think about this is just a, this idea that I have is not just my head and my manager, but more like it could be my cross-functional partners. It could be maybe a skip level manager who I have a good relationship with, who I know cares about this. How do we get more people to think more expansively about this versus just the idea itself and even just my relationship with my direct manager? Yep. So again, I'll, I'll go back to, I, I think for, for most of us, it's almost an automatic process. We come across a set of observations. We encounter a set of problems in our work, and it is so frustrating to experience that. And then once you finally have that solution in your head, it's in your head, it comes right out of your mouth. Like it's that type of automatic process that somebody else who needs to deal with this stuff and has more power and authority to actually address the issue than what I do, they, they need to know about it right now. And my ultimate suggestion is to slow down that idea in the brain and goes right out the mouth process. And to then start to think about this in terms of uh, more of an orchestrated plan. So it, if you're going to be more purposeful about setting the stage such that your boss is not only going to see the merits, but is going to be excited about implementing it. Well, it seems natural to me that you would want to involve more people than just yourself and aligning that type of buy-in having other people contribute resources. Just a, another kind of famous example of this, a guy by the name of Paul Buckheit, which most folks haven't heard of. He's the engineer that created Gmail. Now, back in the day, early 2000s, all he was trying to do is figure out a way to help manage the deluge of emails that was coming across his way. Is there a better way to organize categorize and then manage the onslaught that all of us experience every day with, with email. So he wrote a program and all of a sudden, like someone else was looking over his shoulder and noticed that program. And so then he shared it with somebody else. And then those folks started working on it too. And all of a sudden, fast forward over time, he had a number of different people contributing to that core idea that he had in the first place. And it wasn't just an epiphany moment that he had this great idea for how to better manage emails and went straight to his boss. 
That was a three-year process that he underwent to assemble resources, get other people to buy into it before he got formal resources from his management team to actually pursue that as a product. Like these things are not epiphanies that just pop out and then everyone is on board magically. The, the, it's a, it's a socialized process and we have to think about those other people and how to get them involved in a way that helps you promote your own ideas. That's a great example and a great story. And I, I think sometimes we like to see innovation as the lightning in a bottle thing that just magically happens and evolves magically and very, and I think from, at least from my experience, like I haven't seen as much of that as maybe there is. And I think the Gmail one is a good example. I think one of the things I was thinking about as we were talking was that there's so many great pieces of nuggets and wisdom that employees can do to better surface their ideas up the chain of command. And I also think that particularly again, for managers who do want to become better, there could be also some potential opportunities for managers out there to be more inviting or to be more open to thinking expansively about some of the things that are bubbling up from beneath them in terms of their employees. And so would love to maybe hear your take on what maybe middle managers can do to foster more of an environment where maybe not every idea is accepted, but at least there's more uh, positive encouragement to surface these up and more just more just openness around what could work. Yep. So let me give a, a couple of, uh, of examples here. And I, I'm actually going to start with employees and I promise I'm going to answer your questions about how managers should do this. But um, this is one of the other tactics from the article, and I think it's it's really illustrative. So one of the things that we studied was basic framings. So should you, as an employee, if you have an idea, should you pitch this in terms of, here's a brand new opportunity. If only we could take action on this, here's all the lovely things that would happen as a result. Or do you want to frame this idea in terms of a threat? If we don't take action on this, here are all the bad things that will continue to happen. And I'm going to pick on you here for a second, but we have these two different framings, pitching the positive, here's wonderful opportunity, or pitching the negative, here's a threat if we don't act. Which one do you think employees use the most and which one do you think is supported the most by managers? Mike. My hunch would, so to me, it sounds like the classic painkillers are vitamins, right? In terms yep. of what's going to cause action, like acute pain, or this is enhancing. My, my hunch would tell me just, I think, can just how unconditioned that like people would react to pain more, but I have a eerie feeling because if you're asking me that I might be wrong about that. What we found is that employees end up mixing both of those frames together the most often. Oh, okay. Yes. And those ideas are supported by managers the least. Yeah. So coming out of this, you should pick one dominant frame, either the vitamin frame or the painkiller frame. The question is which one, and this is where it gets to managers. So you said that you were a bit conditioned to think that the painkiller is going to be, is going to resonate the most. This goes back to a personality factor and it's called regulatory focus and it's Essentially, are you someone who plays to win or someone who plays not to lose? And by you saying the painkiller, I'm going to venture a guess that you are a person who plays not to lose. You're a bit more risk averse versus risk seeking. And so 
not too much of a surprise if you pitch this as an opportunity that's going to resonate most with someone with what's called a promotion focus, someone who plays to win. Here's a brand new shiny opportunity, someone who loves to act first and then figure out the details later, that matches really well. But if you pitch that shiny brand new opportunity to someone who's afraid of acting and messing up, that's going to be the wrong pitch. So that's on the employee side. Now, talking about managers, what the implication is, and again, I'm going to pick on you, Al, is that you as a, someone who gravitates toward the painkiller ideas, someone who's a little bit more risk averse, that means that no matter the quality of the actual idea that's submitted to you, if it's pitched the wrong way, you're not going to, you're not going to gravitate towards it. It's not going to resonate with you. And so one of the things that we've talked about a lot is this puts blinders on for managers, just depending on their own personality. So knowing who you are, if you're someone who loves the idea of what's next, let's innovate, let's do things different. Well, someone comes to you and says, this is a massive problem and we need to stop that, that just because the way it's phrased is going to turn you off. And so for you to slow down as a manager to say, all right, if I reposition that as an opportunity to innovate, given that we've identified a pain point, would I respond to that more positively? Now that gives you a different lens to create this type of innovation culture and one that is more receptive to voice by simply slowing your own brain down and asking that question and reinterpreting their idea in a way that most resonates with how you'd react. I think that's a really great uh, framework for, and I was writing down both the regulatory focus and promotion focus. And I think you would be right in assuming that I definitely tend to work more towards the risk averse side. So this, this definitely makes sense to me. So if anyone is ever trying to sell me an idea, there's your playbook, courtesy, courtesy of Ethan. One, one question I did want to ask, because we, we alluded to it a little bit in the beginning, just because of the nature of just the workplace right now, obviously we're in this world where we've been in COVID for two years and certainly still dealing with it, but a lot of talk just around how the workplace is changing and certainly just thinking about continuing remote work versus being in the office and hybrid and everything in between. We'll just be curious to have you think about how you think um, selling your idea up the chain changes or doesn't change knowing that the world that we work in is slightly challenging right now and evolving as we speak. I'll answer with a study that's under review right now. One of the nice things about technology is it offers a lot of different avenues to collect data that we couldn't otherwise if we're just doing this in, in, in person. And one of the technologies that's out there is a product is called Workplace Analytics. It's offered by Microsoft, but there's other platforms out there that are pretty similar. And this product, uh, Workplace Analytics, what it does is if you're on Office 365, it scrapes metadata. So it doesn't read your email, but it can tell who you email and how often. And the same with calendar data. It can tell who you meet with over Microsoft Teams or other platforms would be Zoom or what have you. And through that, you can start to, as a social scientist, really understand an employee's experience at work. As we transition and are in this hybrid environment, how many in-person meetings do you have? How many virtual 
Teams or Zoom meetings do you have? And then how much do you interact over chat and email and through those less rich and virtual communications? And so one of the first things that we did in this study is looking at those different forms of communication. So who do you interact with? Through what medium? Is this your direct boss? Is it your team? Is it people outside of your team? How does that social experience, both virtual and in person, and with different stakeholders, impact your comfort level and ultimately how often you speak, speak up at work? So a couple of surprising things that, at least for us, that, that came out of this. The, the first is we're really used to email. And, and so one would think that if you're going to speak the truth to your boss and tell your boss about things that are wrong or things that need to get changed, that's going to be much more easily done if you have a very strong personal relationship that's characterized by trust. And that's usually a result of having lots of in-person interactions. And what we found is that's not the case at all. And in fact, having just a few emails on a weekly basis is enough to generate that type of comfort level where someone speaks up almost to the point where a couple of emails is almost equal in terms of that comfort and voice as several hour long meetings. And so to me, that brings up some, again, some really fascinating, interesting questions about recommendations for hybrid work. It's not to minimize the importance of in-person interactions. Those are lovely for a whole host of reasons. But if one of the things as a manager, if you're really afraid about is without routine in-person interactions, it's going to degrade culture and trust to the point where you're just not going to know about problems that are bubbling and surfacing up. That's probably not the case. What's more important is just the sheer amount of communication. So you have to essentially replace that in-person interaction with more emails. And usually that means more informal ones. So the quick one-liners and few jokes and stuff like that really do matter a lot. So that's just one kind of quick example. It's a, a paper that's under review. We're looking at others. It's more about cadence. So is it a lot of really intense communications? followed by weeks where there's no communication at all, like that's a bad idea. Uh, much more consistent communications that tends to breed that, that type of comfort. One of the things that strikes me just even from, as you're articulating some of the research that's under review is that I think one of the things I'm taking away from this and what I've tried to do for myself during these times is thinking more about how we actually work. Like the really getting granular into the how of, of, of what we work in terms of what you were saying, in terms of what are the best um, mechanisms to communicate for this specific task versus just launching into just thinking how just we normally default to. And certainly technology has helped us do a lot of that. But I also think the next step of this is also being more mindful about for what need does this tech, you know, this does this specific technology make sense or for this reason it makes sense to be do this in person versus not doing it online and i think that hopefully is part of what more people will think about because um, i do think it does take a level of intentionality that maybe we haven't had to use before or maybe that we just haven't been just thinking about in general so 
it is absolutely more top of mind for everyone right now than it's ever been in the past. Yeah, for sure. Well, Ethan Burris, uh, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation just about some of your research and work, talking more about your HBR article and some of the research that um, you've done and just talking in general about how to sell ideas up the chain of command. If people want to find more of your work or learn more about you, where can they go or where can they find you? So probably the easiest spot is Google my name and you're going to hit the McCombs website and that'll give a little bit of background on not only the uh, research that I do, but also other HBR articles. I've had several publications on HBR, but also Sloan Management Review and, and several others that tries to apply this stuff in a way that any manager, any employee can pick up and hopefully implement right away. So thanks so much for, for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.